here we are right now with chapter number 11 in our series impressions of grace and grit and you better strap yourselves in this is a big one the ever elusive chapter 11 <laughs> there's something a bit of a there's a bit of a how should we say there's a bit of a there's something about chapter 11 in this book there's something about it and it's always spoken about when you speak about this book in any sort of detail then well you have to say something about chapter 11 and you'll see why as we go through. Hopefully you can get a sense of it as we go through. Well, I'm actually hoping you'll sense a lot of things, interestingly enough, as we go through this chapter. The chapter is called Psychotherapy and Spirituality. And here we're going to cover the full spectrum of consciousness. We're also going to be talking about fallacies. We're going to also be talking about reductionism. We're also going to be talking about pathologies. And we're also going to build up this picture of what it means to have meditation and therapy work together in a complementary way. So there's a lot to get through. <laughs> it's a tall order. That's a lot. It's very dense. We've got some dense information coming up. This is Ken Wilbur with his big brain on turbocharge. So you might, this this is the sort of episode you want to listen to with a piece of paper and a pen nearby. So if you're able to do that, if you've got the time to give, then I suggest that for this this episode in particular, because we go through the levels and it's very dense. Now, as we do go through this, try and try and sense for yourself if what we're describing is in you. We're going to be describing the levels of consciousness and ask yourself, have I had this experience before? Do I know what this experience is like? And some levels will be resonate more or less with you. And particularly for the higher levels, because in the higher levels, well, we've all had those sort of peak experiences, those mystical sort of intuitions and those little faint things. I mean, we've all had these to varying degrees, but in a sense, the levels of consciousness, they're all, they're all there if you're an adult. And it's just a matter of realizing and differentiating them. So really... What we're explaining here might for some people be like an aha, I always knew that, but I didn't know how to say it. So it's not as though we're explaining something new. It's more the case of let's explain how things are and you can actually figure this out for yourself. And we'll keep unpacking that as we keep going. and You'll keep understanding that as we go into these. Now, where were we up to with our plot? I believe Ken and Treya have had some time for healing. That was the previous chapter. 
And we've heard a lot about Treya and what she was doing in this new house that they've moved to. She's still working with the the feminine and the masculine. But for this chapter, actually, Treya is away. So she's not very much in this. She's actually gone back to their old house to pick up some things. So Ken is, well, he's at home alone. He's not really doing much. He's sitting on the couch, just thinking to himself, thinking about how amazing his wife is. Just thinking about things. He's also watching some squirrels playing. He's thinking, I wonder what life is like as a squirrel. They're so ignorant, and yet they look so happy. And he wonders, well, what happens if you could sell your soul, not to the devil, but to a squirrel? And he sees, oh, they're quite lively. They're going into the woods, and they're running up and down. And then he gets a phone call. And he picks up the phone, and, well, it's this lady called Edith. And apparently Edith is staying with some friends of Ken's. So he says, well, what's going on here? And it turns out that she's writing a book, which is a sort of compilation of interviews with seminal figures in the world of transpersonal psychology and spirituality. And she'd like to, well, she'd like to interview the great Ken Wilbur. And he says, well, actually, sorry, Edith. I decided a long time ago I'm not going to give interviews or in any way appear in public as a teacher. And the reason, he says, other than the fact that he gets nervous doing that, is that people tend to make him out as some sort of master or guru or teacher. And he insists that he's not. Now, in India, they make a distinction between the pundit and a guru. And this is something Ken is explained to Edith on the phone, so she can understand why he's going to have to say no. A pundit, or pundit, P-A-N-D-I-T, or American is P-U-N-D-I-T, is a simple scholar or a possibly possibly a scholar-practitioner, a person who studies such topics as yoga and meditation and then also practices them as well. So they also do them, but they're not enlightened. A guru is an enlightened master and a teacher. And Ken Wilber puts himself in the category of the pundit, not the guru. So when it says when he says when it he says when it comes to practice, he's a beginner like anybody else. And I feel there's something quite important about understanding the distinctions between these terms. Now the term guru, teacher, or scholar or coach, or trainer. These are sorts of collective terms for the, the, you know, the teacher-student dynamic. And they all have their own different definitions, and they all imply different things. And like all words, well, these words mean different things at different times. Now, these days, the word guru is used in a lot of different ways. Oh, that's a yoga guru or a fitness guru 
or an internet guru, and so on. But that's not how the term guru was used some decades ago. And that's not how the word is being used here by Ken Wilber. Here he means an enlightened master, someone who has attained enlightenment. Now, what does enlightenment mean? Well, we can leave that on the backbench for now. But essentially, what we're talking about is very rare few human beings. You don't come across a real enlightened master very often. You come across many teachers. You come across many scholars. But an actualized, a real guru, a real master, that's someone very rare. And there's a reason why, well, in the West we don't really have them. That's why a guru is usually an Indian man with a long beard, sitting on a pillow. There's a reason that that image exists and why that sort of way of... That, that, there's a reason that image comes to mind when we say the word guru. Now, a teacher... Well, a teacher nowadays is usually meaning someone in the classroom. If we say someone's teaching online, it means they're charging money for their lessons or they're doing it in a sort of... The teacher implies a sort of classroom structure to it. And there's a, there's a specific blueprint. There are principles that apply to a classroom, which is different to, well, a guru giving a discourse or someone speaking on the internet. And of course, these terms are very, very far-ranging now because of the informational age that we live in and how words are changing so much more rapidly. And I remember this funny moment where I'm sure I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. Someone said that nowadays calling someone a guru is like calling them a calling them a motherfucker. <laughs> like you call someone a guru as an insult. Like who do you, who do you think you are? You think you're a guru? And there was this yoga guru that was saying this. That's where I heard this. And he said, if you call me a guru, I'll call you a motherfucker. He said, please don't call me a guru. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of resistance, you know. This word, can, this word can be an insult. Oh, you are, you're a guru. Oh. Now, in the case of Ken Wilbur, he's given about three or four interviews in the last 15 years. And he sometimes answers written questions, but that's about it. And that's always been his stance. And essentially, the story is that when he wrote his first book, Spectrum of Consciousness, he wrote it, and then it came out, and it was essentially a hit. It was enough of a hit for him to have a career in writing. And he figured, well, then he could go on the talking circuit. He could do promotions, he could do book launches, he could do book signings, he could do lectures, he could appear as a guest speaker. And he saw that. He sort of tried that. He did it for some time. But then he realized that, well, he actually wanted to write another book because he had so many ideas, because he was learning so much, because he had so much knowledge. And the year that he spent trying to promote his previous book was wasted when he could have actually written 
another book. And so he said, well, I don't really like this speaking circuit thing, so I'll just write. And he realized that writing is his thing. Writing is what he loves. Writing is his medium, it's his calling. And that's just how it is. Some people like speaking. Some people like writing. Some people like hot air ballooning. And that's just how it is. We all have different callings. And as it happened, well, he managed to keep that up. He managed to write about a book a year, every year, for 10 years. And people started to wonder, well, (laughs) does this guy actually exist? Who is this Ken Wilbur? And a sort of aura built up around him. Now, in the case of knowledge, I should also say that, you know, the, I mean, the brilliance, the amount of, just the, by sheer amount and density of knowledge that Ken Wilbur has, he could have been a speaker. Very much easily so. He could have taken that path. But he just chose not to. Quite simple. And now it's later in his career. I mean, he is speaking more. He's, he's sort of in... I mean, now he's in a different stage as he was as, this na- as, as we are in this narrative. So this narrative was the 80s. This story of grace and grit was in the 80s, the mid-80s. So a lot has changed since then. And Ken Wilber's had many shifts within himself and his work. And now he's actually at a stage where he's trying to bring it out to a wider audience. But that's not till much later on. So he explains all this to Edith. And she sort of keeps talking to him and... She says some funny things like, oh, well, your books are a big hit in Germany. And he says, oh, yes, a big hit in Germany and Japan. And she laughs and says, yes, the, the non-aggressive or the, the aggressive countries. <laughs> and so he sort of starts to warm to her and says, oh, well, she's got a sense of humor. And, well, she's very friendly and there's just something, there's just something about her that he likes. There's just something. So they keep talking a little bit and he thinks, you know what, well, I'm home alone, so, and I'm not really doing anything, so, you know what, Edith, come on over and let's, let's talk. And so, well, she decides, she gets granted an interview and understand that this is very rare. This is very unique. So it's quite a how do we say? It's a quite a isolated opportunity for Edith. And he hangs up the phone and then he goes about his day. So he sits around. He watches the squirrels some more. He thinks about his wife and how wonderful she is some more. And then he has lunch. Because he doesn't want to be hungry when someone's coming over. So he's ready for the interview. And the afternoon goes on. And then he receives another phone call. But he decides not to answer and just to let it ring out until the answering machine happens. 
And once he hears the answering machine, well, it turns out that this is the doctor. And they want to speak with Treya about some of her test results. And Ken runs to the phone, picks it up and says, yes, I'm here. What's the problem? And the doctor says, well, we're going to have to come in to speak about these test results. And Ken's like, no, well, c- come on, what is it? you got to tell me. And the person on the other end of the line insists that they won't say anything until they come in to test, to hear about the results and to speak in person. And so Ken hangs up the phone right as Edith is knocking on the door to have this interview with him. And of course, Ken's thinking, what could this be? Is this cancer? Has she had a recurrence? So Ken lets Edith in and then says, oh, well, make yourself at home, but I'll just be a minute because I had this weird phone call. And he goes to the bathroom and splashes water on his face and he thinks, okay, I'm going to have to suppress this. I'm going to have to just put this out of my mind for this interview. And I cannot be wondering, fearing, worrying that cancer has come to Treya again. I just have to put on the professor face. I am the professor. I am the teacher. And get through this interview. So, he comes out and from here on in, we're imagining ourselves, Ken Wilbur speaking to Edith about psychotherapy and religion. And Ken does have a few more thoughts about how how lovable this Edith is. She's very, she's very bright. She's very warm-hearted. She's got a wonderful smile, an authentic smile. She's not trying to hide the pain of what it means to be human. And she can talk about a lot of things. They actually talk for, for quite some time. And she's really very well versed in the work of Ken Wilbur and very aware of all the tricks and tribulations and dynamics and things. They talk for quite some time, back and forth. And then, well, they come to a certain part of the conversation, and Edith turns on her tape recorder, and this is the transcript that we're going to be going through. So this is psychotherapy and religion. And Ken says, well, what do you mean by religion? Fundamentalism, mysticism, exoteric or esoteric religion? And in one of his books, he actually gives nine different definitions of religion. And the point in that is, well, you can't talk about science and religion or religion and psychotherapy or religion and philosophy or religion and meditation until we decide exactly what we mean by religion. And for this conversation, we really need to only make two distinctions. And that is of exoteric religion and esoteric religion. 
So exoteric religion is outer religion. It's outside. It's basically a matter of belief, not evidence. And it's concrete. It's fundamental. It's real. Or at least it appears real when you are centered in exoteric religion. Then there is esoteric religion, which means that it's it's hidden, it's unseen as compared to the exoteric worldview. And this, this religion is not based on belief, but on direct experience, like all good science. And it's a science. It's a method. And you could say, well, there's no external proof for this, so how can you say that esoteric religion is real? And then we get into this question of, well, well, what is mysticism? And a quick answer to that is, well, where's the external proof that negative one squared equals one? Where is the proof for mathematics? And that gets us to this thing of the science of the inner world and how scientific method is exactly in accordance with esoteric religion. If you don't perform the experiment, then you don't know what's going on. So you're not allowed to vote on maths in the same way that, well, in that, by that token, you're not allowed to vote on what is in the interior world unless you actually follow the steps. So the, Pyagor- the Pythagorean theorems, they're not a matter of opinion. It's not like, oh, how do we all have majority rules? And someone comes along and says, you know what? I don't believe that, so it must not be true. No. In maths, we actually say, well, okay, so you don't believe it. You don't know anything, so let me explain it to you. Here are the parameters. Here are the terms. Here are the instruments that we use. Here's what you have to do. Now, you do all those things, and if you come to a different conclusion, well, you're a budding scientist. You're a mathematician. But if you don't play the rules, well, then you're not working with scientific method. You're working with belief and opinion. So mysticism is not interested in opinions, but scientific method. And then we also come up with, well, he starts to talk about Joseph Campbell, because we can interpret exoteric religions or mythic religion as allegories or metaphors, allegories or metaphors for transcendental truths. But the problem there is that mythic believers, the people who are at that stage of development, aren't doing that. They actually believe it. It is a matter of belief for them. It's a test of their faith. So, for example, Mary really was 
a biological virgin. And Campbell comes along and he sort of says, well, I know what you really mean by that. You're actually saying that metaphorically. And the problem is, well, that is not what they are doing. That's not what they mean by that. And these sort of myths, well, they come up in the 6 to the 11-year-old. And they're produced naturally and easily. And this is a cognitive level which Piaget calls concrete operational. But the problem is, well, not the problem is, but the shift that occurs is once the next structure of consciousness comes through, called formal operational or rational, then the mythic structures no longer work in the same way that they do. So the child actually starts to say, well, where's your evidence? Where's your proof? Or at least they think that if they don't start to say that. So mysticism has always allied itself with, with science as against the church. It's against mythic belief. Because both mysticism and science depend on consensual evidence, peer-reviewed method, a community of participants and experts of the field. And this thing with Joseph Campbell, well, it goes quite deep. Because Joseph Campbell was really just a modern-day student of Carl Jung. And Carl Jung for so long has been considered the, well, the father or the iconic head of this whole thing of spirituality and therapy and how they interrelate. And Jung, Carl Jung, found that men and women can spontaneously produce all of the main themes of the world's mythic religions, the exoteric religions. And they do so in many ways, in their imagination, in their dreams. And from this, Jung figured that these basic mythic forms are common in all people. And that's true, because all modern men and women pass through these stages of development. So they all have them in them. It's a structure of consciousness. But the problem that Jung has fallen into is that he's mixed up the difference between collective and transpersonal. He's found that his archetypes, or these structures, are actually not formless, but they are of form. And yet, transcendent awareness is formless. It's the thing that contains the structures within it. And how Jung uses this word archetype, well, he actually got this from the mystic, but he doesn't use it in the same way that the mystics use the term. For example, Jung would say that, well, an archetype is like the mother 
or the trickster, or the wise old man, or the anima and the animus. And these aren't transcendental so much as they're existential, so they're patterns. But the original meaning of the word archetype was archetypon, which means in Greek, original pattern. So that's more about the ground in which is behind these patterns that emerge. Now, it's not to say that the trickster and the wise old man and the mother figure aren't useful. It's not to say that we don't have to contend with these existential issues. Say, for example, say you've got, well, the example he uses here is, say you've got mummy issues, or you've got a mother complex. Now, you're not just dealing with your own personal mother in that. You're not just dealing with her own characteristics and your own experiences with her. You're actually also dealing with the evolutionary build-up of all the tens of thousands of years of having the mother figure ingrained into our evolution, ingrained into our, well, what it means to be a human. And that means that, well, you can use this to your advantage and it can have its own pathologies because you have an idea of what a mother should be. You have an archetype pattern within you of what the mother is. And so you're contending not just with the person, your mother, but also the archetype of your mother. But this does not lead you to find the original pattern. It doesn't lead you to transcendence. It only allows you to contend with it on an existential level and a personal level. So that's Jung confusing collective with transpersonal. And another simple example of this is, well, we all collectively inherit ten toes. But just because I experience my toes doesn't mean I'm having a mystical experience. So these archetypes actually, or these archetypes, or the, the word archetype in the way that Jung use it, uses it has very little to do with genuine, transcendental, mystical, transpersonal awareness. Okay, so the next little bit that we're going to go into is the actual levels of consciousness. And there are about nine or ten levels altogether. And what we'll do is we'll do it as Ken does in this interview by making a few different paths through it. So we'll go through each of the levels at least twice or maybe three times each with a different sort of amount of, or different, illuminating different parts to each level as we go. Now, these are levels of consciousness. So, 
there's a distinction between levels of consciousness and cognitive ability or cognitive development, but they are related. And there's also a difference between levels of consciousness and value spheres or value structures. So if we're talking about levels of value structures, then, well, that's something like spiral dynamics. So this is closely related to spiral dynamics, but not exactly because spiral dynamics is predominantly concerned with the values. And there's a little bit of behaviorism in there and also experientialism in there. But here we're dealing with consciousness. So it's something different to that. And then there's also morality. But these distinctions, you've got to understand that we're blending them all together. We're fusing them and also differentiating them. And when we talk about levels of consciousness, it's the story of, well, identity. It's the story of the self. It's the story of what it means to be you. Now, it can be how it feels to be you, the perspective that goes along with being you, what you say about being you, and a whole range of other things. But to get into the consciousness side of it, well, we're sort of just washing these together and blending them in and out so that you can get a sense of it. You need, to, you need to be able to sense it. You can't really just be trying to think it through so that it makes sense. You have to actually be really being, as we talk about each level, try and put yourself into that level. And if you read this book and you've discovered these, you can actually find that, well, it's happening to you as you read it. And that's one of the magical things that happens when you read Ken Wilber is that there are certain points where he puts you into certain places. So I hope this is going to be <laughs> this is going to be a trip to go through. So I hope that's enough of a prep to be putting you on your edge, keeping you ready. So what's the relation between meditation and psychotherapy? considering that they both claim to change consciousness. Well, essentially, it's important to understand that growth and development occurs through levels. And if you don't like the word levels, well, you can use the word waves. And these levels are defined by, well, at the beginning, the least developed and the least integrated to the most developed and the most integrated. Now, as life unfolds, well, the stages actually happen quite naturally. But things can go relatively well or relatively poorly at each stage. And at each stage, you're faced with certain tasks or there's certain things you've got to do, there's certain things you've got to realize at each stage. And if you realize them well, well, then you graduate. And if you don't, well, you've got to go back and fix them up before you can move on. And sometimes, in, in many ways, you can actually move on without fully fixing things. You can be a mess in a sense. 
You can have parts all the way up and all the way down and all the way in and out and all over the place. And actually, that is one of the, this is one of the big turning points in your development. It's when you realize that you actually have to go back and fix your stuff in order to move forward. So you're purposely regressing yourself down into a certain stage in order to really actually do the certain tasks that that stage is well required. Now, how this comes into identity is, well, at each stage, you identify with it. You say, that is me. Well, you don't necessarily say it, depending on which stage it is. But to graduate, you need to disidentify and then integrate the lower stage and identify with the higher stage. So you're different, you're, you're disidentifying, saying, no, that is not me. And then you're integrating. So you're saying, okay, I'm bringing this in as a part of me, a functioning part of me. And then you're identifying with a higher stage. So saying, no, this is me. And so on. And these parts, well, sometimes you need to work with building these parts and strengthening them. Sometimes you need to work with integrating them. Sometimes you need to work with disidentifying with them. And sometimes you need to work with identifying with them. So that gives you a bit of an idea of how many of why we have so many methods, why there are so many different things that can work with consciousness. So the other part of this is, well, once you are into, once you are disidentifying, integrating, and then identifying with a higher stage, we call that a fulcrum. Well, Ken calls that a fulcrum. And this is like, well, it's a paradigm shift. Or Eric Erickson called it, at certain stages, the existential crisis or the personality crisis. And it can be quite dramatic or not, depending on the nature of it and which stage it's at. Okay, here we go. Level one. Sensory physical structures. So this is what Piaget called sensory motor intelligence, what Aurobindo called physical sensory. And in the Vedanta tradition, we call it anamaya, kosha, and so on. So this is when the baby is born and the baby is so dumb that it is hitting itself in the head with its own arm. It doesn't even know that it has an arm. Until eventually, at a certain point, it realizes it has an arm and it starts picking up objects. And as the baby grows older, well, the baby can see that, well, if I bite the blanket, it doesn't have feeling. But if I bite my hand, it does have feeling. So the baby is learning this sensory physical structure of object and self. Level two. Phantasmic emotional. So this is the emotional sexual level, the level of impulse, libido, elan vital, bioenergy, prana, plus the level of images. So it's the first mental forms. Level three, 
representational mind, or rep mind for short, which is what Piaget called pre-operational thinking. So this has symbols and is usually found in children aged two to four years old. And then things start to emerge at around the age four to seven in the form of concepts. So images, symbols, and concepts, I mean, they're so, that's sort of like a micro, that's three-in-one stages. And Ken differentiates this. He says, an image represents a thing by looking like the thing. So if you take a photo of a tree, well, then that's an image of the tree. And it really looks like it. It actually looks like it in so many ways. And the more clear an image is, is the more realistic it is, the more exact it is to how it looks in real life. And then a symbol, well, it represents a thing, but it doesn't look like the thing. So a good example of this is when you have, when you have to go to the bathroom in a public place or in the airport if you're doing world travel, then you have a symbol of a man and a woman. So in many countries, you have the man with their arms straight and the woman has a sort of dress. And so that symbol, well, it doesn't really look like a man, but somehow you do know that it's a man. And you know that it's meant to signify the man because it's next to the symbol of, oh, that's the women. So that's the symbol representing something but not looking like something. You can do this with a tree, like a symbol of a tree wouldn't look very much like a tree at all. It would just be it could just be like a cartoon. Like cartoons are in a sense symbols. And then the third part of this stage is well, concepts. So that would be a class of things. So the other thing is that words are are symbols. And the example Ken uses is he says well, his dog's name is Fido, and he knows that the name Fido represents, well, his dog, but the, the words on the page look nothing like the dog. But then the concept, well, that's a class of things. So then you've got the word on the page, D-O-G, dog, but that doesn't represent just one dog. It represents all dogs. So what are the, what are the characteristics that are within a dog which are in all dogs, and yet somehow every dog looks different. Now, for a child to learn that, well, they're going to have to meet a certain amount of dogs. It might be that they understand the word chair before they understand the word dog. Well, I don't know. There are a lot of dogs around. Does a child see more dogs than chairs when they're growing up? I don't know. I guess it depends on their upbringing, doesn't it? So, level four, the rule role mind. So, this develops between ages seven and 11 or so, what Piaget called concrete operational thinking. So, this is when the child is doing, doing things by rules. They're thinking in rules, and they can learn multiplication and division. And it's the first structure that can take the role of another. It's the first structure that can actually start to think, oh, someone else is thinking something. Let me try and understand what they're thinking or what they're saying. And there's a whole bunch of experiments where Piaget has 
demonstrated this shift in cognitive ability. And the most, probably one of the most famous ones is you have the ball, which has two different colors on each side, say red and green. And then you show the ball to the child and they can see that, well, there's two different colors there. But then you sit across the table from the child with the ball in the middle and you ask the child, well, what am I seeing? So the child is now trying to, well, if they've successfully graduated into this next cognitive structure, they can see, well, you're looking at a different side of the ball and it's a different color, so you're looking at that color. Whereas if the child hasn't graduated, they would say, oh, I'm looking at this color. So I would say green when it's not green that I'm looking at. I'm looking at the red side. And then we come to level five, which is formal reflexive. So this is not only thinking, but also thinking about thinking. This is the introspective stage. This is hypothetical reasoning. So you can do thought experiments with this stage, with the child. And at this stage, well, the ages start to leave us. At a certain point in, in early child development, the ages apply. But as we get to around this level five, well, the ages don't apply. And the reason for that is we have a basic amount that you develop to and then you don't develop beyond that unless you actually become conscious of your development and you take it into your own hands. So you can get to this level five of introspective development at a certain age, at a certain time, but anything beyond this, well, it's sort of by chance that it happens unless you take it into your own hands. So level six is existential or vision logic. And this means it's inclusive, integrating, networking, and joining. So it's capable of integrating the mind and the body. And Wilbur calls this the centaur. So you're not only an identity walking around within space, but you are something that has thoughts and something that has a body. And if you've successfully graduated to vision logic, you can easily see that, well, my thoughts are a smaller part of my larger experience and my body is a smaller part of my larger experience or my larger awareness. And those two things are very clear. And this is a great example of differentiating and integrating. Because not only are they clear to you, well, you can have them work together. They work harmoniously. They work effectively. And that's vision logic. Now, level seven is psychic. So this is the beginning stages of the transpersonal or the spiritual or contemplative development. What Aurobindo called the illuminated mind. And it doesn't necessarily mean psychic 
capabilities, but that is where this comes in. That's where that comes from. Are you a psychic? Well, that's this level of consciousness, this level of development that that refers to. Level 8 is called the subtle. And this is an intermediate stage of spiritual development. So it's the home of various forms within divine realms. And yet it's not to be confused with mythic collective forms. So the archetypes of Carl Jung, they're forms at a stage much lower than the subtle stage up here. So collective forms occur at different stages in different ways, and it's easy to confuse the two. Now, I will also mention here this word subtle, and actually level nine is called causal, and this also <clears throat> this also comes into this category of something I need to clarify. I have this talk, which is called, You Have Five Bodies. And the five bodies are physical, emotional, energetic, subtle, and causal. Well, I put cosmic in there as well. So if you've listened to that talk, you need to understand that the word subtle and the word causal is used very differently to how we use it here. So you don't need to abandon that definition of what I say in that talk. You just need to understand that here it is different. And I'll tell you how. In integral theory, or the way I used it originally, is the, the causal, particularly the causal word, or the causal realm, I meant that to mean the entire mental sphere, the entire noosphere. So all words, images, symbols, and everything. Which would mean that in this model here, of these 10 stages of consciousness development, the word causal actually means everything from about stage 2 all the way up to about stage 8. And that's how I use the word back there. That's how I use the word in that conversation. Now here, the word causal, in the way that Ken will be using, is using it, is in a very narrow, specific, and single level of consciousness. He's using it to, to describe a single level. So the word causal can mean a broad term, interchangeably with noosphere, or it can mean a narrow term. So here in this conversation, it's a specific definition for a single level of consciousness, not multiple levels. So the subtle we've covered, it's talking about divine forms which are not mythic forms. 
And then we get to the causal. And this is the pure, unmanifest source of all other lower levels. And the difference between subtle and causal, well, the the subtle is in communion with the divine. So when you're in the subtle realm, when you're at the subtle stage of development, you're actually you're hearing God speak to you. You're hearing the universe speak to you. And you're interacting with the universe. You're interacting with God. You're speaking to the universe, speaking to the world. So it's very deep intuition of very large things. But in that, the reason it's called subtle is because in that realm, there's still a very subtle difference between you and the rest of reality. It's very subtle. You're very close to being God, but you're not God. You're communing with God. You're in communion with God. You're relating to God in the subtle realm. But in the causal, this is level nine, that falls away and you have formless Godhead or the abyss and you realize that you are God. And then we have level 10. So level 10 is not a level. So if you look at the diagram in the book of these, then there's only nine, but the 10th one is the paper in which the diagram is written, which is ultimate reality, which is all levels, all at once, constantly, forever. (laughs) And in the case of, well, I guess in the case of you and me here, it would be level 10 is the headphones in which are in your ears right now, or the speaker in which my voice is being played across right now, or the the actual device, whether it's your smartphone or your computer, that is playing this podcast episode right now. It's here in this very room. It's immediate, and there's no escaping it. So the level would have to be a picture of exactly what's happening right now for us to describe it, and that's level 10. So, level one is matter, physical. Level two is body, impulse. Level three, four, and five are of the mind. So we have mythic and rational and post-rational and introspection. And then levels seven, eight are for the soul. And level nine and the paper or the podcast is spirit. Matter, body, mind, soul, and spirit. Broadly speaking, those are the levels. Now, one fallacy is that many... Theories maintain that this sort of oceanic or undifferentiated state of Godhead is a proto-mystical state that is the same in the first level, since the subject and the object are one in the baby, in the two-month-old baby. Now, this is a position that 
Ken Wilber says that he finds untenable, untenable, because it's actually also he he also finds it quite annoying, and there's a bit of a he wonders if he's getting a bit riled up about this because it's a bit of a touchy point in transpersonal circles because it's a mistake because it it's putting mysticism either into the lowest state of the two-month-old baby, as in a downward regression, or it's elevating the two-month-old baby to the mystic. And both of them are wrong. Both of them are not the right way of seeing it. And he says that this comes up in, well, Jung and Freud. And this is the difference. It's not a union of self and other in the baby. It's an indissociation. So there's no differentiation in the baby. And this whole thing of elevating and reducing, you see so clearly in Freud and Jung. Because, well, what is Jung doing? He's elevating certain pre-egoic, pre-rational states to trans-egoic and trans-rational glory. Whereas Freud, well, he's saying these trans-rational, trans-egoic, mystical states are actually just infantile. They're from way back there. They're from your childhood. So it's like confusing preschool with post-grad school. And... This comes up in Christian mysticism or Christian esoteric religion, which is when you realize that the Christians say you are born in sin. You are born in separation from God. You are born in alienation. It's not something that you do after you are born. So being born in sin is not a question of morality. It's not a question of, oh, you were born and then you came along and you did something against God. No. That's the fundamentalist, exoteric religion version of Christianity. Whereas in the esoteric, transcendental version of Christian religion, well, you're born in separation. You're born in alienation from God and your job is to, well, go through the stages to grow older and more complex and more aware than a two-month-old baby. Okay, so now let's make another pass and we'll flesh out some more of the dynamics and descriptions of these stages, as well as looking at the disturbances, pathologies, neuroses, and problems of each one, and also some of the things that work and don't work and how they work in relation to meditation and therapy. So, level one. This is so primitive that if disturbances here... They are very grave. If you can't tell the difference between your arm and the chair, then you're in trouble. You're basically in a vegetated state. People do have strokes and things, 
and turn into this vegetated state. And there are certain forms of autism or I think cerebral palsy or polio. There's certain conditions that actually have people stuck in this stage. This stage, and it's very difficult to help them. There are very few methods. Level two, the emotional phantasmic level, which is usually the first two to three years. The body has to separate and individuate from the mother and from the physical world at large. And if there's a problem here, well, they call this uh, borderline syndrome because it's between psychosis of the previous level or the vegetated state and the neuroses of the subsequent level. And more preventive related to this, but more primitive is the narcissistic disorders where you're so self-centered and so undifferentiated, you believe that, well, what your mother says is what you're saying. And to contradict that, to be still so attached to the mother, causes great harm. And for a long time, these sorts of disorders, because they're so low in the level, they were thought to be such early development, such low levels, then it's thought to be impossible to treat them. But there's the work of Mahler, Kohart, Kernberg and a few others that Ken mentions that have developed this thing called structure-building techniques. And the other thing to understand at this stage, at level two, is they're not attempting to dig something up from the unconscious. There's no repression here. So the goal of a structure-building technique is to actually get the person up to a new level where they can repress. So using opening repressive emotions techniques doesn't work. That's why they have structure-building techniques. They don't have an ego in order to transcend the ego at this stage. Which happens, well, that comes at stage three. So level three, the representational mind. This is around the age of two until the age of seven or so. They have a mental self. And at here, well, now you can repress because you have feelings and you have thoughts And you have things like guilt and anxiety, because if you can think, well, you can wonder about yesterday and wonder about tomorrow. And if the anxiety or the guilt is too great, if the feeling is too hard, then they can repress them. So they can, you can repress thoughts and you can repress emotions that cause bad feelings. So you're moving away from bad things. And this is, well, the dynamically repressed unconscious, which Jung called the shadow. It's the part of you you don't want to see, the part of you you don't want to feel, the part of you you don't want to experience again. So you hold it away from you, not me, not me, at all costs. 
And here, well, this is what psychotherapy is for. And the way you do that, well, the uncovering techniques, it's... There are many ways, but essentially you say, well, say whatever comes to your mind without censoring it. Allow yourself free range, freedom of expression. Befriend and re-own the shadow. And when you do that in a therapy session, well, all of a sudden all your bad stuff comes up and then you can look at it and you start to deal with it. But there has to be that initial uncovering for you to work with the problem if you don't admit it well that's the funny thing isn't it if you don't admit your problems you can't work with them that's where this stage comes in now next stage stage four which is the rule role mind which is between ages of seven and eleven you're working with concrete operational so you're increasingly working with habits and roles and rules. So I behave this way because I. this is the rules. This is how we behave. I do this because it's the right thing to do. So your moral sense is beginning to shift from pre-conventional to conventional. So it's not self-centric. It's socio-centric. So we follow the rules because everyone in my school follows these rules. And every culture has its own rules. Every culture has its children going through the rules for the purposes of, well, concrete operational thinking. And these rules, well, they become scripts. The words that you live by or the slogan that you live by. One for me was, no hat, no play. So if you don't bring your hat to school, you're not allowed to go out for lunch. And then we would say, well, no hat, no play, no school today. <laughs> and this was one of the little scripts that we had. And that would be ingrained into me as a child. That was, oh, it was a terrible thing if you forgot your hat. Oh, why did you forget your hat? And my mum would say, oh, what happened to your hat? How could you forget your hat? And then the teacher say, very bad, very bad little doster. How did you forget your hat? No lunch play for you today, little Doster. And these form, well, the rules, the myths. And then the next stage, well, to, well, to work before we move on with that stage, we have cognitive therapy. So this is when you're talking with your therapist and they're trying to expose the actual rules and once you identify what the rules are or what the scripts are, then you can reflect on them, which brings you to the next stage, which is operational thinking. So introspecting. So you're no longer just swallowing the rules of your society, but you're actually reflecting on them. So you're no longer self-centric or socio-centric, you're world-centric. So then you're starting to say, well, what are the rules in the other families? What are the rules in the other schools? What are the rules in the other countries? And you can say, well, I'm not following that rule because in so-and-so country, they don't follow it. And this sort of thing. And this is the stage, well, this is the stage of introspection. So the question of who am I 
becomes a burning issue for the first time. It's the identity crisis. And the only treatment is more introspection. It's up to you. You're the only one that can answer that. And in this case, well, the therapy is not a uncovering and it's not a cognitive rewriting. It's not a script rewriting. It's more of a dialogue, a Socratic dialogue, which is showing the method of how you can answer this for yourself of, well, how should I behave or who should I be friends with or does it fit with me to be someone who's an active person or am I a creative person? Am I a smart person? And am I an ambitious person or whatever? Whole range of things. And at this point, you've got to understand that this kind of introspection, it's not contemplation. There's a difference here. Because at this stage, you're not looking for the great mystical quest for God. It's not the mystical quest to find the deepest truth of all reality. No, it's introspection for how do I work out myself in my school and in my community and in my country? And then we get to the existential level. And this is the mind-body integration. So we call this the centaur level. So problems at this level are existential problems. So things of questions of morality, questions of finitude, mortality, morality and mortality, integrity, authenticity, meaning. What do things mean? What is the meaning of life? And these Issues, well, they do come up at other stages, but here at this stage, they come to the forefront. Here, they're the most dominant thing. And then we get to the next three stages, psychic, subtle, and causal. And this is where things get tricky because we're getting into some very high territory. As your identity continues to expand moving beyond the separate body-mind into the wider spiritual and transcendental dimensions, you culminate into the widest identity possible. So you get in touch with the supreme identity. And the identity of your awareness and the universe at large is not just the physical universe, but the divine universe. So you're now going theocentric. So you've gone from self-centered to sociocentric to theocentric and this is where you're in touch with cosmic consciousness and you develop psychic capabilities and your sense of intuition is blossoming these are all qualities of the soul and your own awareness goes beyond your own sensory perceptions you're you're seeing things that aren't just seen in your physical world sense of seeing. You're also seeing things within the psyche, within your spirit, within your soul. And this sort of this these three stages of psychic, subtle and causal, Wilbur calls yogis, saints and sages, respectively. 
So the subtle level, sorry, the psychic level is the stage of yogis. And they're the ones that are bringing their sense of attention, their sense of body-mind integration, their mind, their intuitions, all into a much more rigorous control. So if you're a yogi, you're aware of these things and you're actually really sharpening them up. You're putting them into highly integrated, highly differentiated, highly compartmentalized, highly functioning, very clear, very rich, very complex, very easy flowing parts. So all the parts in your being are very much part of this. It's the superhuman. You're the, you're the, you're, you're the master in a sense. It's very hard to put into words because you're so far beyond. It's, it's the sort of person you see like, wow, they have just everything figured out. Someone who's just spitting wisdom all over the place. Someone who's just figured it all. This sort of person. And that's the, that's the psychic level, the path of the yogis. And then that continues into the subtle level, which he calls the path of the saints or the stage of the saints. And this is where the illusory world of duality starts to appear in reality. So there's nothing but spirit itself in all parts. So all the parts are starting to blur and the background is coming to the foreground. So consciousness at this stage actually becomes like light filled. And he says that a lot of the time you notice that saints, well, they're depicted with halos of light behind them. So if you go into a church and you see a saint, then there's, it's going to be like there's a sun behind them shining out, rays of sun. And you can get an experience of this. It's when you close your eyes and, well, what have you got when you close your eyes? You've got darkness. But at this stage, you've actually got light. That darkness actually turns into light. And this is also known, this is also equated with, in some cultures, the third eye. So you're starting to see through the third eye. And it's actually an actual flash. It's a sensation of, well, illumination. And you can't see where the light's coming from, but you know it's there. But you, you close your eyes and you see, well, there's... There's something there that's switched from darkness to light. And then we get to the causal realm, which is the process is complete. So your identity is with Godhead. And at this stage, this is the stage of the sages. The sage is often depicted as someone very normal. So you're no longer the superhuman of the yogi, and you're no longer the illuminated mind or illuminated being of the saint, you're actually very normal. So it's chop wood, carry water. So individual who's, who reach this stage are very hard to pick, and this is also very much a Zen thing. And he also, referenced that, he also references the 10 Zen oxen pitches, herding pitches, and, well, this is sort of another form of the different levels, but in this very last stage, the 10th stage, the picture is just 
an ordinary person going into the markets. And the only caption is, well, they enter the markets with open hands, and that's it. So, for these last two, there's not really pathologies or you're not going to be going to your therapist saying, look, I'm too much a yogi and I want to be more of a saint. You're not going to have psychotherapy for that. You're going to have meditative techniques for that. And all we really go into here, all that Ken talks about is that he says that each stage you can become attached or fixated to the experiences of that stage. So the saint is, well, drawn towards the light. You know, that whole thing of, oh, go towards the light, go towards the light. No, don't follow the light. Well, that's that's where that comes from. And the superhuman, well, the, the yogi, well, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because when you're a yogi, you're a superhuman. You have so much working so well. And to put that aside and to be the sage means to be basically nobody. You don't have those, in so many strange ways, you don't have any skills. You're chopping wood, carrying water like a peasant. So, meditation is not an uncovering technique, and meditation can be used for the fixations of the higher stages and also for propelling you through the higher stages. Now, there is a lot of crossover, of course, between meditation and therapy because, well, when you sit down to meditate, things might come up. You might suspend your egoic mental activity for long enough for trans-egoic, transpersonal awareness to develop for a short time, and yet you can still remain with your repressions. So there's a difference between having a moment where you go into a higher stage and shifting there as in having your identity shift there. And meditatively, well, another thing to say about meditation is that you can actually learn to witness your neuroses and your emotional problems, which allows you to actually live with them. So you're no longer changing your problems. You're no longer changing your scripts. You're just witnessing them. So think of it as in the the higher up you go, the more different things can go wrong. The higher up you go, the more opportunity there is to get things working nicely. Now, if you're over the ages of 28 or so, you're basically there. You're already there. And there's a significance to the age 28. Because that's when, well, all structures are available in a very real sense. So if you're a <laughs> if you're if you're at the rational stage and you're listening to this, wow. 
That's a very low stage and you're probably having your mind blown to pieces by all this, by being able to follow along. Chances are, <laughs> chances are if you're listening to this and you're following along, you're well beyond rational. You're transrational already. And if you're bef- before rational, if you're mythic, well, it's too much already. You would have tuned out long ago. There's no one listening to this who is who is not post-rational, essentially, or at least had certain amounts of higher experiences and understandings in order to follow along. So there's also the worldviews for each stage. So respectively, we've got stage one, archaic. Stage two, magic. Stage three, Mythic. Stage four, mythic rational. Stage five, rational. Stage six, existential. Stage seven, psychic. Stage eight, subtle. And stage nine, causal. So these are essentially the names that we use for each level and what the world looks like if you were only at that level. So say you had a structure of consciousness which was confined only to that, then we'd say, well, this is what the world is to you. And at archaic, well, you've got a dualism. Things are undifferentiated. And at mythic, well, you've got the rules of God which you follow, and God will do those things if I follow the rules. And there's also a certain amount of human sacrifice that happens just just after that. And human sacrifice, well, that was hap- that happened in multiple cultures the world over at that stage. And then after that, well, they start to think huh, these rituals aren't really doing anything, so I'll just go after nature myself and I'll use science. That's the rational stage. Hard sciences, empirical sciences of I'll build the axe and chop down the tree instead of waiting, instead of praying, instead of sacrificing to God in order to get whatever resources I need from that tree or from nature. And then you have, well, the existential stage, which is if there's no God and we're here to make it up for ourselves, where's the meaning? Life is so meaningless. Things were so much more meaningful when God was around. Now I'm just alone in the universe. I'm just atoms and protons bouncing around randomly. And that's, well, that's the issue of the existential phase, which is how do you get meaning back in your life? And then there's also psychic, subtle, and causal, and that's moving towards a more holistic approach. And the other thing I'll say about rationality, and this is how Ken starts to wrap up this conversation with Edith, is that he says, rationality is a movement of spirit towards spirit. It's not a debunking of mythic religions. It's just another step along the way. And that, again, is why so many scientists 
have been great mystics. Scientists, as we spoke about previously, have these mythical, esoteric religious intuitions and experiences. And this is a natural amalgamation of the two. So the science of the external world joined with the science of the internal world is the real meeting of East and West, the real understanding of spirituality and psychotherapy. And so then, well, they finish up the conversation and Edith leaves. And that is the end of the chapter. And in our plot, well, Treya comes home and Ken says, look, I've had a call from the doctors. We're going to have to go in. And the next day they go in and they find out that she has diabetes. And that is not what either of them expected at all. They were expecting that it would be cancer, but it's not. It's diabetes. Which is, well, it's quite a serious disease. A lot can go wrong. It affects many systems. And I don't know much about it. I know it affects the blood cell counts in some way. But we can tell that Treya and Ken are in for some more caring, some more healing, some more dealing with disease. And we'll find out how they do that as this plot continues to unfold. And that's where we leave the end of this chapter. Chapter 11. Psychotherapy and spirituality. And that's all I have to say for now.